0: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast, I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. One of my favorite parts of pathology is that there are many opportunities for lifelong learning. And because of this, for many of us, there are also many opportunities for teaching. My guest today is Christine McCluskey. Christine is a pathologist assistant and an assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine. Today, we're going to talk about her path into the field how she got involved in teaching, and her role in the forthcoming AAPA preceptor program. All right, here's Christine McCluskey. We want to talk quite a bit about the new, the AAPA preceptor program, which is still kind of in its early stages, I think, at this point. And you're the, I believe, the project lead for that. Is that right?
1: Yes, I am the uh, the subcommittee chair. Like I'm subcommittee um, educational chair for it. So okay, yes, I would be the preceptor program lead or gotcha. subcommittee chair. yeah.
0: Okay, so we're, we're definitely going to dig into that. But at first, I kind of want to start with kind of your educational background and your sort of career path uh, so far. So let's go back to the beginning. Then you, I, I know you studied biology in college. What type of? I did. Okay, what type of careers were you looking at, at at that time in biology?
1: Um, actually, this is this is a funny story. So, I originally did not start with biology. So, first, um, I kind of had to find my way to what led me t- uh, to what I do now. So, I've sort of come full circle. So, originally, I was a psych fine arts major because I thought that um that I would be an art therapist and then changed to psych pre-med because I enjoyed the physiology behind disease and then changed the degree to bio premed as I kept taking additional uh, anatomy and physiology courses and comparative anatomy and histology. I was a histology TA for two years. And then following graduation, I considered a PhD track in pathology to teach. Um, I became an, a health assistant in the dorms, you like a, uh, there are resident assistants in dorms, so I became a health assistant in dorm, which I shadowed the doctors and nurses in the health clinic. And um, I was at Loyola University in New Orleans, and I decided to explore medicine. And um, I decided I did not want to go to medical school, but I wanted something else because I did not like the non-compliant patients who kept coming into the clinic with the same problems that they could solve.
0: Well, let's go back. You mentioned the the art therapy uh, thing you said, majoring in, in psych and fine arts. Th- that's interesting me- to me. I don't know what I thought I've really, really ever heard of that before. Like, how did you become interested in that back then?
1: I wanted, I, I had a lot of, um, advanced art courses in high school, and I originally wanted to go to the art Institute of Chicago, but I didn't have a portfolio that was sent to go to a college. So, um, so then I decided to go to Loyola for that because I heard that their their art program was very good. So I decided to do a psych fine arts because I was interested in uh, abnormal psychology and possibly being a therapist and using my arts. So.
0: Okay. Okay. And the reason I asked that is because you know, as we know, there is a bit of art in pathology i mean certainly what we do is as pas there's you know there's even kind of i guess painting if you want to call it that so that's interesting that you had that kind of interest early on
1: yes we do have a very visual um job
0: <laughs> yeah you mentioned how you you know looked at the medical field and how you didn't want to go to medical school so then how did you discover the pathologist assistant field
1: So um, following graduation from college, I worked as a research assistant at LSU's pharmacology department because there were no openings in pathology research. I performed animal surgeries, frozen sectioning, and immunostaining, and someone had posted a job for a forensic pathologist or forensic pathology fellowship, and I began Googling careers in pathology, and the AAPA appeared describing a PA. So I connected with the webmaster, and he told me to call Leo Kelly. So I called all of the PA program directors and some were receptive and others were not. And Leo spent the most time with me and referred me to a pathologist and a local PA to shadow. So I shadowed several times and I applied to Quinnipiac and a few other programs. I immediately got a QU interview and was accepted shortly thereafter. And the rest is history.
0: When you, when you did that shadowing with a, with a local pathologist, did you immediately go like, oh, this is exactly what I want to do? Did you have that kind of experience?
1: I actually shadowed with the PA, with a local PA and I loved what she did and I was like, this is definitely for me.
0: Okay, so it was it was pretty much right away. Right. Okay. Well let, let's talk about your experience at Quinnipiac a little bit. So for you know, for people who don't know that the PA program, then it's a master's program. It's two years. The first being kind of the didactic part and the second year then is the 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 clinical rotations, right? Yes. Okay, going through kind of the the didactic first year, like what parts of that really did you find interesting?
1: What I was interested in was at the beginning, of course, the gross anatomy was very interesting. I didn't really like the physiology within histology so much. Um, a lot of it was like a return to organic chemistry, so I didn't like or biochemistry, which I didn't. I, it's it's not my forte. But the program, like networking with all of um, the future PAS, are from around the country that were there, and also all of the potential rotation sites and the the reputation of the sites and the uh, the type of education I would receive there in training.
0: All right, I think you, you kind of mentioned this already, but the, because you are very involved in teaching and you've been for a number of years now, but I'm curious kind of how that interest uh, began.
1: So I felt like I've been a teacher all my life. I was a competitive dancer and I taught dancing either as a marching group leader in Mardi Gras parades in New Orleans or a summer camp for girls. But teaching in higher education began during my first job as a PA in a private practice group where I had high school students shadowing me for a health science um, program and so that they would pay attention, I would give them quizzes to make sure that they were absorbing something or paying attention to the anatomy, the disease process and so I was heavily influenced by Leo Kelly because he would always i oh, I wonder if Leo's ever going to listen to this podcast but um but he was he was always constantly making sure we were absorbing everything since so much was thrown at us in that first year. So I would give them quizzes like every day and um, I think they appreciated it. So I, I was naturally, a, I felt like I was naturally a very good teacher and they were getting something out of their rotation with me.
0: Okay. Now you've mentioned Leo Kelly a couple of times and of course he was the, the, I don't know, is he still the, the program director at Quinnipiac?
1: He is retired.
0: He's retired. That's right. That was just recently. I remember the the Buttons had a conference a couple of years ago.
1: Yes.
0: He was kind of a, I, I would I guess you would call him a mentor as far as as far as becoming a PA. But would you consider him a mentor as, as far as becoming like an educator or a teacher?
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Okay. Uh, what about were, were there others that you can think of that that inspired you to kind of pursue that pursue becoming a teacher?
1: I mean it may it may have been people along the way like in high school I had an art teacher who I absolutely loved she was great at drawing talent out of people and I always thought you know some of my classmates in high, in uh, art classes in high school they were they weren't very great at the beginning of um of the of the class but then at the end I was like wow that person drew that so it was like those teachers inspire me who can absolutely draw talent from people. I think it, it was, it was Mary Jane Moak at Chappelle High School in Metairie, Louisiana. So she would definitely be one of my, um, my probably a mentor.
0: That's interesting too, because, you know, like you said, drawing, drawing talent out of the student. I mean, when it comes to some of the, Parts of pathology can get a um, little—I don't want to say boring, but we'll say less interesting. And so, I think it's important, you know, as a teacher, to make them more interesting and to kind of draw, I guess, the interest out of the students. Something like that. Does that does that make some kind of sense?
1: Draw um, motivation of yeah yeah that's a better word right. So there is actually a fourth dimension of learning. If you've heard of the different like cognitive, psychomotor, affective, and then there is another realm called the cognitive and that's the actual will to learn. So it's not well researched right now, but it's something that we need to look at in our learners. So that would actually be one of those ways that an educator educator would really have to find out how to draw out interest and talent in someone. That's very challenging.
0: You're an assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine. Correct. All right. How did your career at Baylor start?
1: My um career, I was very bored in a private practice group. I felt like I was stagnating, like kind of like grossing and everything, you know, that we all the AP skills. I felt like um been there, done that. I needed something a little more. Okay. So um I wanted to move on to education because I really liked interacting with those um, shadowing health professional high school students. I wanted career growth as well. Not that there isn't career growth in a private practice, but more so you you can have more career growth, I feel like, in academics. I also wanted to be in the Texas Medical Center at a prestigious academic center like Baylor College of Medicine, and that's why I made the move from a private practice.
0: So what was kind of your first position, you know, a teaching position there at Baylor?
1: The Baylor uh, standards are usually uh, people with master's. We would start at instructor level. So at first I was instructor and that's how I, that's how I entered Baylor college medicine as instructor. And then it had to take several years until I could actually figure out how to move up, up an academic rank. So um, that was challenging as well.
0: (laughs) You were teaching what medical students? at the time?
1: No, I, sorry. I came in as, um, I was a, I was a preceptor for Quinnipiac right away because a QU student was there and then, um, instructor for the residents. I was hired as supplemental teaching at, um, one of our hospitals that Baylor, uh, covers.
0: Oh, I see. You were, you were teaching what pathology residents there?
1: Right. right, yeah,' okay. So I went in as their p a to help with the clinical overflow um also as supplemental teaching, and I was also the preceptor for the q u student
0: okay, and you well, when I still you say,
1: the, yeah,
0: okay, when you say supplemental teaching, what does that mean
1: so just the the pathologists they can't spend i was there was no p a there to actually teach the residents how to gross and and do frozens and things like that so they they needed help with they needed to outfit the this one particular hospital with with a pa who could teach the residents as well
0: i want to talk about some of the things what some of your educational efforts during your time at, at baylor because uh you know i was kind of reading through your bio and some of these are really interesting so the the first one is it's you started a monthly gross case workshop can you tell me about this? How did, how did you come up with this idea and how did you kind of develop it?
1: Okay, so um, I was contacted by an MD Anderson pathologist since MD Anderson is directly across the street from Baylor and s- several of our hospitals. He had taught courses for the basic science graduate students and he wanted to see an archival, an archived system of specimens retained for teaching. And we had no space at the um the hospital where I'm at. I'm at Bentob General, by the way. And Ben Tobb uh didn't have space to host about 30 students that he proposed to bring over. So um and also that could sort of be a HIPAA violation if you have, you know, outside people going to your facility to see specimens, unless they were de-identified or whatever. So I put together a presentation for them and MD Anderson instead of cases of uh, of interest representing the paradigm of benign to malignant disease presentation. So our residents found out and requested that I do it for them. So any teaching cases are cases that I had grossed and the residents had lost that experiential learning because I had grossed the cases and they weren't present or they weren't on that rotation for the month. It was archived as the workshop. So I then um, introduced microscopic correlation. I collected the evaluations for this. I showed that these presentations increased the knowledge, the comfort level of the resonance grossing, and submitted it as a manuscript to the AAMC MedEd portal, which published it as a teaching tool.
0: Okay, wow, that's that's amazing. Did you get, once it was, was published, did you get some feedback or, or responses from uh, people in other places about it?
1: Yes, I actually, This that's an awesome question because I got, uh, I don't know how many uploads I've had of it, but it was, it was, you might want to look it up. I can give you the, the link later, but um, I haven't checked how many, how many uploads, but I received a call from Drexel University to teach like a part of their leadership course. So I've done that two years in a row because of that manuscript. and. I have interest, which I'll, I guess I'll discuss later, of actually submitting a manuscript as a result of the AAPA uh, Preceptor Program as well.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely give We into can talk
1: that. about that one later.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I will. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely send me the link for for this article, and I'll I'll include it in the show notes for the episode, so everybody can check it out. Okay. Great. Something else that you did, and this one I, I found very interesting. So this was in uh, 2017, and you organized an all-city anatomical pathology symposium. Now, first of all, this sounds like a gigantic undertaking. Yes. <laughs> all right, t- t- tell me about this. How did you? How did you decide? To, how did you decide to do something so big?
1: Um, I decided to do something so big because I felt like it was necessary to fill the gaps in in our residency program. And it acted as recapitulation of what they were learning in their AP rotations. So in, in four years of their training, I think it's impossible for them to experience all cases, either macroscopically or microscopically. And it was a way to introduce to the undergrads as uh, shadowing and restrictions, uh, due to HIPAA, uh, don't allow them to really experience pathology at all. Um, and medical students are less exposed to pathology as it is usually, as it, it is usually not a core requirement. Mm-hmm. So the medical field is filled with misconceptions of the pathology field as well. And it was, and I even opened it up to the entire college to attend.
0: Okay. So you, you had undergraduate students and medical students at this
1: right i i invited all of the colleges in texas and louisiana and um we did have undergrads attending medical students we had 90 people total um of the medical students and undergrad it may have been like 10 but of the others, it was more pathologists, actually, than residents who came to this. So it was a great collaboration of pathologists and PAs as a, a, in a teaching platform like this. It was great.
0: Mm-hmm. okay, okay, that's interesting now, I love this because you're trying to introduce pathology to not only medical students but undergraduate students to kind of uh show them like you said there's misconceptions about the field to kind of show them what this is really like, but that's really interesting that there were a lot of pathologists there too Do you, did they say like why they why they wanted to be there too?
1: I think they were supporting each other because we had so many um presentations
2: okay. and
1: they may have been there to review as well. Maybe that may have been a reason why they, they may just be there to have supported me because I, I pulled off this gigantic project. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just wanted to say that it wasn't me by myself, but I had begun a local uh, professional group of PAs and we were called path assist um, of Houston, Texas, our, our path P-A-T-H. Okay. And we would meet and put together the curriculum and the logistics. So it was probably about ten of us who put this together in the Houston area. So it was a gigantic feat.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would say so. Like yeah. how long how long was the planning phase of this? How, how long did that take?
1: I think it took us about a year.
0: And and the symposium was was it one day or was it a couple of days?
1: It was three days.
0: Three days. Okay. And then you said there were what, like presentations, like what what type of presentations?
1: There were presentations every hour, I would say from like eight to four or so. And I did how to teach someone how to gross personally. And then we had, we had a breast pathology one where it was, it was a joint presentation with me and the breast pathologist and we showed microscopics and difficult cases, and then how we would gross it, and then the microscopic correlation. So basically, it was like that our interesting gross case workshop, and we did all breasts like on that hour. So it was it was sort of set up like that, like all system systems based uh, organ based systems based case presentations.
0: Oh, okay. So it was sort of every hour was kind of themed, I, I guess, in, right. in a way. Okay. Yes. So after the symposium, then what, what type of, uh, like, did you get feedback from, from that,
1: from people who had attended? We had excellent feedback. And then we tried to have another symposium in 2020 and uh, it got canceled, of course, due to COVID. And yeah. I received um, interest from from other people asking if it was, if we were ever going to have another one. So, but based on the ASCP, evaluations we we had all of the the presentation all of the presenters had very high scores so and people were happy
0: is there interest in putting on an, another one sometime in the future
1: there's interest but i have so many things that are happening to me right now so many different uh pots on the fire that i sure. don't yeah. i don't know if i can plan this right now
0: yeah i can i can definitely relate to that This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Christine McCluskey. We'll be right back. LabVine has recently reached 5,000 members and they're running a Lucky Draw giveaway to celebrate. All you need to do to enter is refer a friend. So log into LabVine, click the refer a friend button and enter their name and email address. Now, there is no limit to how many people you can refer, but each person has to be either a laboratory professional or someone who works in the healthcare field. And if you're not already a LabVine member, you can follow the link in the show notes to sign up and check out some of the great courses that they have to offer. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Christine McCluskey. On the People of Pathology Podcast. So let's get into the AAPA preceptor program. As far as I know, this is still we're kind of early in the planning stages. So can you kind of tell me about, about this? Let's let's start at the beginning of this program and how did this idea start in and, and we'll kind of go from there.
1: Okay. Well, actually it's being edited right now for the next few months, and it's it's to launch in June 2022. So actually, it was Megan Pickard's brainchild, and then she asked me to take over as this chair, given my experience. Uh, I had been pursuing the AAPA for years to have opportunities to have an educational program for academic PAs, and PAs and even doctors do not learn how to be academics or to teach. So I gave a lecture in San Antonio for the status of academic PAs, and I also led a roundtable discussion in San Diego concerning constructing academic CVs, promotions, preceptorship. And uh, Megan gathered the volunteers and then created the modules. So I answered the call for the AAP me- PA members to help with the curriculum for this. I was placed in the behavioral module since my doctorate involves research, which uh, a, an organizational psychological approach to solving problems in academic medicine.
0: Why, why do you think it's it's important to have PAs involved in resident ed- education? Or why do you think we're kind of particularly skilled to be able to do that?
1: I think, well, the the program isn't just for resident education, it's also for preceptors for PA students. So I think that because we are in the front lines and, and often I think we spend more time with the residents than they actually do with the pathologists on sign out, we can detect any deficiencies and we can, uh, uh, we can change our teaching skill. And we, uh, we see everything I think firsthand if there is an actual problem, like if foundations are if the foundational um uh, knowledge is actually not there, like you know uh you have to keep going over anatomy with someone, or you know sometimes the the residents haven't seen anatomy since gross anatomy, which was probably like four years prior to them entering residency, so we can we can we can target the deficiencies as we spend a bit more time with them i think than the pathologists do at their scope sometimes
0: i was just thinking like pretty much all of the pAs that i know are 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 good teachers they're really able to explain what they're doing and teach other people how to do that so there must be some some kind of i don't know personality trait or something like that amongst people that become pAs that make us good at that aspect of the job.
1: Well, you know that's really interesting you say that because um in my research I found out did you read the article that James I believe it's James Wright, a Canadian pathologist wrote about the the Mavericks, the two Mavericks.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, the, the, the kind of, history of the history of them Yes. yes.
1: Mm-hmm. So one of um one part of the article mentioned how physician assistants were actually uh considered how how they they came about and first nurse practici- nurses not nurse practitioners but nurses were were actually inquired about uh interest of becoming a physician assistant and uh, it actually the um the interest was with it wasn't really with them it was more so with first responders or firefighters so I think we always remain very vigilant of errors being in the front lines. So mm-hmm. I think it's a trait of PAs, just like a firefighter. Because how many fires do you put out as a PA? You're constantly putting out the fires before the pathologist gets their slides at the, you know, or their other report. So you're always making the changes and helping out the residents.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true. That
0: That's a very good point. I, I guess I never really thought about it in that way before, but you're right. You, you mentioned that the most of the modules for the Preceptor Program are completed or being edited. Can we talk about some of these modules? Like, what what are what's kind of the subject matter of some of these?
1: Of course. So the goal of the program is to help academics PA academic PAs refine their teaching skills as preceptors for PA students or teaching staff for residency programs. It can also serve as an introduction and current status of academic medicine regarding interactions with residents and PA students. And those in private practice would also benefit as they could be training a staff of technicians, new PAs or act as a lab directors or lead PA. So there will be an online learning tool for them found at the AAPA website and the program will have five links or branches of five modular categories. The categories are behavioral, overview, introduction month learning theory and other learners they will start with a pre-test and a post-test and eventually we may gather the data and submit the manuscript like i had mentioned before to the amc and the MedEd portal as a teaching tool so did you want me to describe each module in detail
0: yeah yeah if you would that'd be that'd be great
1: okay so behavioral is the first one I'll talk about. I just wanted to give a shout out to Kerwin Cole Heffer because he is the lead. We were co-leads on this, but then I, I became the chair of it. So okay. um, this one contains high reliability skill, emotional, emotional intelligence, uh, feedback and motivational techniques for learners, conflict resolution. And that one is going to be a continuous PowerPoint. And eventually with the pre-test and post-test questions, that will give the learner the CME credits for this. And then the other module is uh, overview by uh, the lead is Alexis Snyder. So this one is a compilation of uh, information about how resident match works, the ACGME program standards. It's more of an informational packet and it will have a pretest and post test questions for CME credits. And then the introduction module uh, by Casey Lyle as the lead. This is a continuous PowerPoint as well with the pretest and post test questions for CME credit. This one highlights the importance of grossing lab policy, CPT coding, and it's an introductory month structure. And also uh, there's mention of lab quality control. And then the uh, learning theory, uh, Christina Narricorn is the lead for that. And this one features learning styles and teaching styles. It's more like a um, introspective view of the the learner of the module. You can actually find out wh- how you what your teaching style is, how to teach your learners, how to read your learners. If your learner is best. With, as a visual learner, an audio learner, uh, reading and writing or kinesthetic learner. Uh, this also features principles of learning like how students organize knowledge influencing how they learn and to apply what they know. So for example, that part of the module would feature a concept map, um, which is, I, I entered the map, the, the, concept map con- the concept map tool in there, so I gave a lecture of 130 slides for breast pathology and I made it a single one-page map with connections for the learners um it's actually designed for I mean anybody can make a concept map for like different organ systems but there you would have um you would have the knowledge would be organized and condensed so you wouldn't have so many so much information, like 130 slides for somebody to feel like they have to memorize. It would just be condensed into one page. Um, and then the last module is other learners. Uh, Kathy Brown is the lead on that one. Um, this one is very interesting, but it's, it's how it's communication skills and how to work with others like histotext by a repository representatives, microbiology, the OR staff, and how things are processed and sent. And the the uh the interactions between other departments as well, maybe transcription, and also there's a mention of our identity, which is very a description of what a pathologist assistant actually does.
0: Oh, interesting. That's, yes, I, I like that. And the okay, it seems like a lot of these are kind of theory of teaching or maybe theory of learning. But the I want to talk about the communication skills, the the last one you mentioned for a little bit because. This is something not only for PAs, this is important, of course, but I think this is something really important for medical students and residents to learn as well, because like you said, you have to, you know, you're working within the lab with other staff members, and it's important to learn how to how to talk to other people and how, and how not to sometimes. Right. Uh, so, so I'm I'm really glad that's included in there.
1: It is. Uh, the conflict resolution is in the behavioral part. And um, mm, okay. I have in there how uh, if have you ever heard of the humble inquiry by Edgar Schein. I have not. So it's actually the leader ends up humbling themselves. So if you were in a, um, a uh, if you wanted to have a difficult conversation with someone, say you're telling a learner, you're talking to a resident and they keep doing something wrong over and over again, and you have to bring it up and they may not take criticism very well. So you would say something like, how can I help you help me? Something like that. How can I help you help change the situation, you know, so you don't make this error again. So you almost humble yourself and say like, how can, how can I, help you. So it doesn't happen again, but you're not actually saying, you know, stop doing this. Like, why do you keep making this error? And mm-hmm. it, ma- it just, it just makes it, it breaks the barriers and it, it doesn't, it doesn't make people feel so, uh, standoffish to your criticism, but it's a sure. nice way of speaking. So,
0: yeah, it's, it's a very kind of non-confrontational way to do it, which is probably right. a lot, a lot more effective.
1: Right. It's a, it's a form of servant leadership.
0: Okay. That's interesting. That's yeah. another term. Mm-hmm. I, I i have not heard that term before either. And you said this is set to go or plan to go live. What June of, of next year?
1: 2022. Supposedly. Wow. <laughs> well, we're going to do it. We're going to do it.
0: Okay. And so, so do you have any idea? Like what would be the rollout of this thing? How would, how would that happen?
1: I guess we would. We would edit everything and then standardize. We would use the the AAPA brand, just make sure all the colors and the background looks similar. And then we probably make an announcement or do a test run. Um, That's what I think would would happen. And maybe have like a focus group to just go through um, taking the, the module courses before it actually goes live and just fine tune everything that way i think that's Mm -hmm. what's going to happen i hope that's what happens
0: okay i see that makes sense and you know i'm sure you're familiar with with the grossing guidelines and they're constantly sort of updated you know as as staging and things like that get updated but do you think a program like this preceptor program do you think that would be probably revised and updated as the years go on too right
1: Yes. So any form of education is very dynamic and you always have to update and update. I mean, as we there are parts in the module that are like the ACGME standards and things like that. Or um if anything else actually would work better, like if there's something else like the humble inquiry, um, you know, something like that.
0: No, we we've been talking about a, a lot about education and about you know not only your education but the the way that you educate others and you've been continuing that for yourself as well i mean recently it was i think it was earlier this year you completed your doctorate in education right
1: i did yes
0: okay now i'm curious why you wanted to pursue this this degree why did you want to keep going with that
1: okay so i really wanted a voice and i wanted to learn how to be a change maker so I chose to get an EDD, which uh, an EDD is designed to prepare for educational leadership roles, and a PhD is more for research and teaching roles. So EDDs are actually the change makers, and they learn the skills to target problems and resolve those problems. So I already had research in the making. I just didn't know how to do that or solve problems, and that's why I went back to school.
0: Now that you've completed that, are there things that you've learned in this in, in your doctorate program that you're applying to what you're doing now?
1: Yes. Every single course was completely applicable to real life. So my research was a mixed methods cultural assessment of high reliability characteristics in residency and PA programs. So I would like to inject high reliability organizational um technique into the problems that i'm seeing in the field and that's where i'm probably going to go with that but i have more i have more details if you want about what i'm actually going to do with with my research now
0: oh yeah yeah uh I, I would like to hear about that
1: okay so a lot of people don't know what high reliability organization actually is yeah so, I'm, one,
0: I'm one of those
2: people
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's fine it's fine okay. i, I don't okay. know. I, I know that some hospitals make these announcements that they're high reliability centers and, you know, they can encourage high reliability and all of this, but no one actually understands what it is. So it's actually, um it's it involves five principles to decrease error in a high risk setting like aviation, military and nuclear power plants. So there were two famous sociologists, Wyke and Sutcliffe who actually um, coined this term based on their research for these high risk settings. So they found that the characteristics of the principles, there were five major ones. One is a preoccupation with failure, which is always a leader should be always seeking errors. And, and have a, one example is to have an open door policy. And then the second one, the second principle is a sensitivity to operations which is an immersion in the leadership immersion or non-leadership immersion in front lines and to monitor what errors could be about to happen so one of them to me is to actually monitor caseloads between all your different learners so one isn't having an experiential learning loss the other principle the third principle is deference to expertise and those are um, in organizations seeking expertise for those from those with the experience and not necessarily those with a high rank. And then the fourth one is a reluctance to simplification. So that one is difficult to describe, but it's seeing the organization as a large organism with many moving parts, having the value uh, that always trying to do better and not settling for a status quo. The fifth one is a commitment to resilience. Can we actually bounce back if there is a disaster or if error happens? Um, is everyone in the organization competent? Is there comprehensive? Are there comprehensive learning experiences for the for the trainees? So that's that's where I would apply the HRO here by saying, you know, are we are we making sure everyone is competent? Are we finishing with total competency for our trainees?
0: Okay, I see, and this is this is the kind of stuff that you're uh, going to be applying going forward.
1: Yes, it actually hasn't been done before in medical education. Um, it's been detected for like uh, patient patient falls in nursing facilities or nursing units, but it hasn't really been researched within medical education programs.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Something, yes. something brand new. I like that. So I imagine you, you would be planning to write a uh, paper about that as well.
1: Well, my thesis was that.
0: Oh, I see. Okay.
1: Yeah. So detecting the characteristics of HRO in uh, PA programs and residency programs. I'm currently seeking to become an educational assessor or an educational reliability director maybe that's currently my goals for this so i okay. can actually detect hro within our programs for our pa students or our residents so that is pretty much my end goal right now
0: okay you said just an education assessor
1: yes like what okay. are the cultural factors that are affecting training programs
0: oh interesting okay yes. so christine it's been really interesting to uh to, to hear about your career and, and the things that you're, you're doing, you know, even currently, and also the AAPA preceptor program. I'm definitely interested in this because I do work with residents. Um, and I like mm-hmm. the idea of kind of the sort of the theory of education. That's, that's a so, something that I find very interesting. So mm-hmm. uh, Christine McCluskey, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Have a good, a good night.
0: Great big thanks to Christine McCluskey. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. What was like the initial idea or the initial conversation about this?
2: Well, it was Dr. Bardess's idea, and having had edited the pathology uh, of the fetus and infant from Potter's, she said, we need to do something that's a bit more focused and a bit more instructive and... We have so many good cases and so many good pictures. And so she just kind of got the ball rolling and we discussed, you know, chapters and what we wanted to include and uh, all that type of thing. And, and we just kind of got started. It took us a couple years to get it done because it was just her and I at that point. And now the second edition, we added Dr. Thora Stephenson, who I currently work with at Tampa General, and she was a, did her two year fellowship with Dr. Gilbert Barnes, and then was hired on uh, by Tampa General after Dr. Gilbert Barnes retired. So it was just uh, an easy decision to include her on the second edition, because then if we decided to do something uh, going forward, then she would be, you know, the pathologist uh, on the the authorship along with me.
0: You can hear more from pathologist assistant Diane Spicer in episode 52. So there was a lot of good information in this one from Christine. We've had a few episodes now where we're talking about the theory of teaching and the theory of learning. And, you know, it's one thing to try to teach someone, but to be most effective, you have to understand how people learn. And the science behind this is constantly evolving as we learn more about it. And with that, teaching methods, teaching styles, and teaching aids are evolving as well. I mean, we've seen that throughout the pandemic, most definitely. And I'm really looking forward to the preceptor program coming out later this year from the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. I mean, we talked quite a bit about this in the episode. This sounds like it'll be very useful for anyone who is teaching residents, or medical students, or PA students, really any part of medical education. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at people of path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.